0: This episode of Paper Team is brought to you by Roadmap Writers. Check out their newly revamped on-ramp program, which gives writers month-long access to educational webinars, interactive pitch prep sessions, and online pitching opportunities. To learn more, visit roadmapwriters.com and use the code Roadmap, all caps all one word to save $15.
1: Welcome to Paper Team a podcast about television writing and becoming a TV writer. I'm Alex Friedman, aka TV Calling. And I'm Nick Watson on Twitter at underscore
0: NJWatson. And today we're going to talk about everything TV writers need to know about entertainment law from contracts to credit. And to do that, we have a special guest, entertainment lawyer Pano Spanos, who just recently founded Spanos Law and was previously at Eric Feig Entertainment and Media Law. Welcome. Welcome. Thank you. All right, let's get started. (music) So first up, just tell us a little bit about your background. How did you end up in L.A. and in the industry?
2: So how did I end up in L.A.? Uh, I actually married an actress and followed her out (laughs) to Los Angeles. It's a little bit of a a backstory, but I I met my wife in New York City, and I was still in law school in Buffalo, so we made a little pact. She was going to get married to me and follow me to Buffalo for a year while I finished law school, and we would move to a major metro where she could act. And she'd already done New York, so we said, all right, let's pick a new city together that neither of us had done. And LA was on the list for both of us, so we packed our two cars, our two cats, and we... (laughs) We drove on down, Uh, you know, a little bit of a hope and a prayer. We found our place, we found our our jobs, and we moved from there.
1: What drew you to entertainment law in the first place? So I actually kind of fell into entertainment
2: law. Uh, When I first got here, I didn't have any job prospects. I started doing background uh, on movie sets just to pay the bills, and I had just graduated law school, so I didn't have the bar quite yet. I was looking for any legal job. So I was trolling Craigslist and I found a job that said executive assistant to an entertainment lawyer.
1: You found a job on Craigslist. I did.
2: <laughs> I didn't know about things like the UTA job board <laughs> or even awesome Assistance or any other you know, potential resources. Mm-hmm. So uh, I just looked anywhere I could. And originally I wanted to be in more intellectual property, but like patents and that kind of stuff. Mm.
1: This was all kind of a surprise to me. Can you walk us through what entertainment lawyers do and how they differ from managers and agents? Sure. So we're talking more on the representation
2: side than we are on the other side, like business and legal affairs. So I'll just say that. Um, So specifically with writers, you know, typically we, first of all, don't charge the same percentage as other (laughs) people do. We charge 5% rather than 10%. But really how we differ from agents and managers are we're not the guys out there necessarily shopping you for a job so an agent might have an idea of the landscape of what writers rooms are open what positions look like what networks are looking for when they're shopping projects really what happens for the entertainment lawyer is where somebody who's there at your behest to really look at the deal and negotiate from a very high level to bring you the best possible paperwork that you can have now this is a little bit important and nuanced and why it's different from being let's say a manager or an agent Agents, typically, especially for writers, they're also looking for package deals when they're selling scripts, or, you know, they have a bunch of other people that they're trying to get staffed on the show. Uh, managers, similarly, they've got other, I won't call them motives, but they've got other concerns as well. You know, they might be coming to produce something with you or helping you develop your overall career. So the lawyer who doesn't kind of have those other interests like myself, can take a bit more of a straightforward approach to what is the very best thing for this client on this deal. And we use a different set of relationships. So where agents and managers really have the relationships at the creative side, we have great relationships at the business affairs level, we understand how the business model of the networks and studios work.
0: And that's really where we bring a lot of value. So can you walk us through your day to day, either at your current company or where you were previously? What does a day look like for you?
2: Man, uh, I don't know that there's a typical day. So I do a combination of things. I'm not only a talent attorney, I'm also a production attorney. I split my time a little bit between both. I actually also work a little bit in AR and VR and in cryptocurrency. Wow. So there are areas of passion for me. It's why I left my previous firm, not because of any issues. I, I love that firm. I work closely with them still. Typically, you know... If I've got a lot of production work to do, I work for a, a huge Fox TV show as a production attorney. I can't say which one, but uh, I also work for a Netflix co-production show. I can't talk about that one either right now, but on the production side, I'm doing everything from negotiating actor test deals to writer deals to producer deals, director deals, location agreements, releases, etc. cetera, kind of anything that the productions might need. On the other side, you know, the talent representation side, it really kind of depends on the workflow. So, you know, I have everything from writers or even friends who are reaching out for a favor saying, hey, I've got a property I want to option. You know, what does the marketplace look like for this? What do I have to think about when I go to approach a meeting with this potential owner of these rights? Or I might have a day where I'm looking at staff writer agreements, you know, trying to leverage the best that I can to get them above scale. You know, I might also have uh, actor or director agreements because I also represent actors and directors. So it
1: it really varies day to day. You touched on that a little bit earlier, but can you sort of explain how entertainment lawyers are paid, Uh, are all of them through a percentage or are some of them paid through a retainer or some kind of hourly fee? Uh,
2: That's a really great question and it all depends. So the traditional entertainment lawyer model is a 5% model for representing artists. So when we say artists, we mean writers, directors, and actors. Sometimes, you know, if you're only making scale, or if you're really only making very low money, subscale if you're non-WGA or you're not a guild member, one of the various other guilds, maybe it doesn't make sense to have a lawyer, truthfully. Maybe to bounce ideas off of, great. But until you're at a certain place... There's not really enough value, at least for me. I I even often openly tell people, hey, you don't need a lawyer right now. You're doing scale deals. Your agent's going to know exactly what you need. Work with your agent or your manager. As far as how we typically work, you know, it just depends. If you are, let's say, a producer or you're doing something that's more of a producerial capacity, like optioning rights, etc., And we don't have like a long history of working together. Typically, that stuff's done in an hourly. You know, if one of my friends comes to me and says, hey, man, I really want to get the the life rights to Kanye West. Like, what do I got to (laughs) do? I say, look, there's a bunch of phone calls that have to happen. First of all, do you have relationships with Kanye or his people? But typically, I don't go shopping for those rights or helping to facilitate that unless it's on an hourly basis. Now, if I've done a ton of work for you on the percentage side, like you're staffed, I've done your deal there, and you know we've done a, a bit of business together, I know you have a proven track record in getting things done. I tend to not ask for an hourly. I'm also, because I started my own firm, part of the thing I wanted to do is be a little more flexible, especially to people coming up, because I recognize the barrier to entry is, is really difficult. And sometimes you need a lawyer, like, especially if you're trying to go acquire some rights. So I've been saying to people that, look, if you can show me your tax return from the last year that says you're making 50K or less, like, I'll do it for really cheap. We'll do like a third of what my normal hourly would be. And, you know, that means that you have some skin in the game. So you're not necessarily wasting time to, like, get something done, but also that, you know, you're going to still get something of quality.
0: So what do you think is the biggest misconception that people have about entertainment lawyers?
2: Sometimes people, I think, think that they don't need one at a certain point. And while I really feel that, again, agents and managers bring incredible value to teams, but sometimes they maybe think they understand issues in certain ways that I don't think that they necessarily do. And that's not a knock on them. They have a specific lane. Personally, I don't feel that agents or managers are well equipped to understand the nuances of guild requirements. So when you're making that jump from non-WGA to WGA or non-SAG to SAG, really how to leverage, you know, what you've done before to really improve your ability to get like that notice and get into the guilds. So I do think that that is a little bit of a misconception for people like who's going to bring the right value to your team to help you achieve those goals. I do think that, you know, there's a phrase that rings for me often. They say that agents and managers come and go and lawyers are forever. Most of our clients, most of my clients are long-term. They're not hopping from place to place. My friends who are actors are maybe changing their agents every like four or five years and they feel a little stagnant. You know, you don't see that really often with entertainment lawyers.
1: Can you walk us through in what capacity does an entertainment lawyer enter the picture uh, when it comes to screenwriting and particularly TV writing? For me, I
2: like to be a little more hands-on. The traditional entertainment lawyer model was, look, we sit back and we wait for the agent and manager to negotiate a deal, maybe high-level points, and then the lawyer comes in and you know works with the studio to get the right language or paper. Personally, I like to be in a much earlier position. So like when we're first hearing an offer, I I like to be involved at that initial step because I like to use my relationships to leverage the best possible deal. I also, again, speaking to that nuance of the WGA or other pieces, I like to kind of know what's being offered so that I can potentially leverage better language at the outset as a deal term, as opposed to trying to negotiate it in the nuanced language, when then the studio has a much more leverage to say, look, we closed on these major deal points. This wasn't a deal point we negotiated. I don't want to give it. So another great phrase that I live by, that my wife actually told me was, if you want leverage, bring value. And so I think the best place to bring value is at the outset of a deal. And so that's why I like to be involved so early on. As far as how we are a little bit different than the agents or managers, again, I think I touched on it earlier, like we have different relationships. So and often we're working very, you know, lockstep hand in hand with, you know, your team. So while your agent might be trying to leverage his position on the creative side to build momentum and say, hey, guys, you know, you really love his or her stuff please make sure you're pushing the BA to come to the table. I'm on the other side with BA saying, look, your creatives really love him. I've heard all the great news, how they can't live without him or her. We need to do better by this or we have to walk.
0: So in regards to those negotiations, for those who don't know, what is the process of negotiating and agreeing on a TV writer's contract, say when they're getting staffed?
2: I mean, it's pretty straightforward. Typically, at least in the staffing realm, there are often actual like progressive steps especially when you're just getting going you know when you first get a couple of episodes as writer's assistant or even a writer's pa occasionally you're still operating really under your writer's assistant or writer's pa gigs if it's a wga show what they'll probably do is hand you their standard contract there's almost no negotiating room in those contracts But it also depends on the situation. If you've been with the show like three or four years, if you've maybe sold something else in the meantime, and that's really what also helped to leverage your position on the show, sometimes you can use those other points. But yeah, traditionally, at least getting going, those initial contracts are very straightforward. There's very little to negotiate. Really, the biggest point of negotiation is how quickly you progress up the staff writer ranks. So, moving from writer's assistant into staff writer on the next season, and then moving from staff writer to like executive story editor or any of those other roles that there are.
1: So it's always kind of pretty straightforward initially, where it's essentially a WGA minimum basis, and then you leverage on top of that.
2: Yeah. So, you know, if you're returning to the show after one or two seasons, if you've done a number of episodes, it's typically easier to leverage and say, look, you love having him, him or her in the room. You know, they bring a lot of value. We've got a Bump their title a little bit better and try and maneuver in such a way that you're bringing either better credit or better dollars at the end of every season. So Mm -hmm. going to that next season, the place where you really make the most money, obviously, is when you're then leveraging your connection for that from that show to maybe spin to your own project. And really, that's where a lot of the extra
0: leverage comes into play. So what happens in the circumstances where a contract like that is breached, either by the writer or by studio or producer, that kind of thing? What what tends to happen there? For example, someone is under option to come back for another series and they go off and do something else instead.
2: It really just depends on how terribly the studio wants to enforce it. Honestly, most of the parties really try to come together to some amicable solution. The truth is, the last thing a show wants is an unhappy person working on the show. You know, you feel it in the room. I'm sure you guys have been there, like somebody's having a bad day. It kind of starts to infect other people. It's the same thing in law firms. You have, you know, somebody walk in, they've just had a terrible weekend or a terrible night. And, you know, it just kind of affects the vibe. So the last thing that they typically want is somebody who's very unhappy. So look, they tend to work with you within reason. Personal service contracts are really difficult to enforce. Non-competes are really difficult to enforce in California, for instance. So what's going to happen? It kind of varies. Again, could they sue you? Of course they could. They can try to. They can try and tie you up in court. Do they want to? Maybe, maybe not. It really depends on the person of the studio.
1: So let's say a TV writer is repped by an entertainment lawyer. How can that person best use his or her lawyer in his or her case?
2: I'll be honest. Typically, don't take on a lot of TV writers at the outset, especially when they're just getting staffed. I go back to what I was saying before about you know wanting to bring actual value to the team and make my 5% worth it. So if all they're, you know depending on the studio, if all they're really doing is giving you staff writer deals... There typically is a a very logical progression in how the show has set out. You know, if you're a first-year staff writer, here's what you're getting. If you're a second-year staff writing, you're getting a bump. There's not a lot to do there. I have a few developmental writers who are in those positions that I work with, and even then, typically we're not doing a ton of their negotiating on that. The agent or manager is leveraging as much as they can, and if we can help, we step in. But... I'm involved because I like some of their writing in other capacities. Either they're selling shows on the side to other people or they're selling features. So, I mean, the truth is I only really wanna be involved when I can bring the most value. Mm -hmm. So to leverage your attorney, look, when you're at a a bigger state, meaning you're at that executive story editor level, you're starting to move up into maybe some kind of co-producer level or like close to a showrunner's level or an assistant showrunner level that's really where we're starting to bring a lot more value. And that's where I recommend bringing us in. Also on the feature side, that's really where I feel like we bring a lot of value. Whether it's WGA or non-WGA, I do feel like we can use a lot to help get you there.
0: On the topic of contracts, what do shopping agreements and option agreements look like for screenplays and how do they work?
2: Okay, so that's a great question. Shopping agreements and option agreements are really similar in scope and like what you're trying to achieve, but they're different in function. So what do I mean by that? So a shopping agreement is typically nice because you're not necessarily ponying up any money. Okay. You guys are going in as a partnership and let's just use an example. Let's say you wanted to shop my life rights, Nick. Mm -hmm. You're like, I want to go develop this into a screenplay and I want to go sell it at a studio or pitch it as a concept. And the shopping agreement you're not paying me anything for that. So typically the range in time is between six months and 24 months on the shopping period. 24 months is really long. Six months is pretty short. If you have to write a script, maybe we say 18. Give you six months to write it, 12 months to shop it. Okay. What happens is when Nick goes and shops the project and he says, okay, now I've written this screenplay on Pano, and I'm going to sell it to Fox. Fox says, okay, we want to buy it. We want to buy the script from you. And you say, look, I have the sole right to go shopping in town. So Fox here, I brought it. Now I'm going to negotiate my deal for the sale of the script. And Pano, you're going to negotiate your deal for the sale of the rights. Mm -hmm. So we're now independently negotiating our deal, subject to each of us closing our deal with the studio. And now we're essentially partners going for it. Mm -hmm. And an option, same idea. You're trying to achieve... Taking my life rights, right, and shopping or creating a script and selling it somewhere. The difference is that we've already pre baked in a way for you to own and control the rights by setting some kind of purchase price. So, option agreements are actually short for option purchase agreements. The option is you're paying me a little bit of money to secure that timeline. So, let's say you pay me a thousand bucks to have my life rights for the next year, and maybe you have a couple of Renewal options, the ability to extend that out for additional payments, and you're going to sell the rights. And when you do, I'm going to get an amount. And that amount is pre-negotiated either as a percentage of the budget, maybe with a floor and a ceiling. So let's say if you're going to sell the script, you say, Pano, we'll pay for your life rights 2% of the budget with a floor of $20,000 and a ceiling of $100,000. So Those are also important, understanding why you need a floor or a ceiling. If you're the life rights holder, you want a floor because you want a minimum. You don't want your rights being disposed for a dollar. Writer, you want a ceiling because you don't want the budget to be inflated just because you have to sell the rights at a high percentage. So 2% of, let's say, a $2 million budget versus 2% of a $100 million budget. So you wanna cap them out in some way so that it doesn't eat in,
1: you can take A-list, cast it, and other things. Mm -hmm. Well, on that topic, how should a writer go about getting those rights and optioning rights or some kind of IP? Is that something you recommend people go to lawyers first for? Is that something they should try to sell first? How would you approach that?
2: Well, let me break down your question first. So as far as approaching rights holders, like life rights holders, I'm reminded I, I just did a life rights agreement for a former Olympic athlete. I was on the writer's side. Man, honestly, the best way is whoever has the best relationship with the life rights holder to approach them about that. So there's two pieces. A, you know, getting the person whose rights they are very excited about that. And if that means that, you know, let's say you're a great people person, you can sell the idea in the room and the concept and the vision is yours, you know, as the writer, I encourage you. Go get that person excited, but then also temper those expectations back for the amount of money that you think that they're going to make. Then bring in your entertainment attorney, then bring your agent in or somebody in to negotiate that deal. If you don't know the person and you're looking for the rights, then maybe it's better to bring an agent or a manager or an attorney in at the, the outset, have them seek that person out or seek their appropriate connections to get to them and have them negotiate from there. I really caution like people negotiating at the outset, understanding the marketplace is really difficult. So it really helps to have an agent, a manager, or a lawyer when you're negotiating the deal points. How many months? What's the purchase price going to look like? What kind of reversion rights you could expect? Meaning like, could they get those rights back for how much, et cetera? Uh, Yeah, I think it's really important to have somebody who understands the marketplace on your team before
0: you do that. You mentioned kind of understanding the marketplace. How do people go about doing that, essentially? How do you survey what's going on in the industry at this point and turning that into useful information?
2: I think it's actually a bit difficult for writers because writers are in their lane. You know, they're developing and maybe they're reading a lot. But typically, I don't think that they're seeing a lot of the back end of the deals that are happening. And that's why I I was saying understanding the marketplace might be a better role for an agent a manager or a lawyer you know typically i'm doing somewhere in the nature of 50 to 100 option or shopping agreements a year so those vary obviously from like book option agreements or life rights agreements etc so i can really try and look at other analogous properties that i've seen either people based on their stature books based on their publication statistics etc that I think are very beneficial. And that's how you use either a lawyer or a manager or an agent to survey kind of the landscape. It's really just about their experience, getting to see that volume of different deals and knowing also what the studio's appetite is going to be. For instance, if you promise somebody a million dollars for their life rights, you may never be able to shop or sell that project because there's not a studio in town that picks it up.
1: Again, it depends on who that person is. And can you speak to the unique specificities of selling a TV show as opposed to a feature film? It's a huge, huge
2: question the way that you <laughs> post it.
1: I mean, there's a there's a lot of different
2: considerations. The, the credits are different. The money is different. Even approaching different networks or different studios, it really varies it's just, that's, a I think, a little too broad for me to, to answer effectively.
1: From the, the perspective of the writer, what do you think a writer trying to sell a TV show can use his or her attorney in the best way possible? What would be sort of the questions they should be asking? What should they be worrying about in the sale of a TV show?
2: So, I mean, that's why you, you have those people on your team is to worry about that for you. Really, for me, the biggest concerns that I'm always looking for in the sale of anything, whether it's TV or feature, are... The rights that are granted, the rights that are reserved, the credit, and the money, right? I mean, those are the major terms, anyways. If you're WGA, you know, I'm worrying about making sure that you're getting the best deal to improve your quote, to make the next sale even better than this one, or to, you know, also consider maybe your relationship at a place. So maybe you're giving a little bit less on this deal. Or getting a little bit less on this deal to get a lot more on the backside for another deal. If you're not WGA, really for me it's about leveraging how to build enough both buzz for you in town, which means placing you at a place where your films are actually going to get made so that you have a better portfolio, and then also using that to leverage you becoming WGA when the time is right. I caution even actors or writers going union too quickly before they've built enough of a rapport, because it may actually hinder you finding a job later. Both of those markets are very saturated, whether it's WGA or not. So if you have ins to make non WGA projects, or non union projects, and you're not union, then it may behoove you to stay in that lane for a little while, build the buzz you need so that you can then use that as a springboard for when you jump to WGA
0: to command more volume to command more respect, which also translates to dollars. So speaking of credit, are entertainment lawyers involved with credit arbitration on scripts, And if so, how does that process work?
2: So we are, but typically it's not your traditional transactional entertainment lawyer. There are very specialized people who come in for credit arbitrations. I'm reminded of a couple that a few of our clients have done. One of our client who wrote a script for Disney, one of our clients who wrote something for Legendary. They both had WJ credit arbitrations in the last year. They both brought on an independent advisor for that. I believe that person in both cases was an attorney, although they were two separate individuals, neither of them acting as attorneys. They're just consultants. They understand that credit procedure really well. I think that if you truly stand to potentially move your credit from a shared to a sole credit. It's extremely important to have those people. If there is a potential for your credit to kind of be extinguished, meaning that you don't necessarily qualify for shared credit, or maybe you've only done a, a very minimal change to the script, which maybe doesn't warrant you being in the three named writers that, that receive credit on screen, then I think that it's very important to have somebody. If you don't stand either of one of those situations, then I think it's not necessarily as important. But knowing when you're in one of those situations is hard. So you may need to just consult with somebody
1: at the outset. And for those who are not familiar with that process, can you walk us through what that credit arbitration looks like?
2: I think it's more important to maybe take a step back and understand how credit is assigned to begin with. So typically what happens is a production... After either an episode has been shot or after a movie has been shot, they submit what is called a Notice of Tentative Writing Credit to the Guild if it's a WGA show. So uh, we're only talking WGA for a moment because non-WGA, typically it's built into the deal how credit's going to be assigned. Um, So we'll leave it at that. For WGA, again, that Notice of Tentative Writing Credit, it gets submitted to the Guild and it gets submitted to all the writers, anybody who wrote. Everybody kind of takes a look at it. And then they say to themselves, well, okay, there are certain contributions that you would make to a script to maybe get you a certain amount of credit. And Guild has a bit of an opaque internal process. Okay. So the outset, what they do is they take whatever credit is submitted in that notice of the tentative writing credit at face value. They say, okay, the production said, here are the writers, here are the credits that we're assigning to them. We'll go with that. Unless somebody brings a dispute. Essentially what you do is you file with the guild and you say, I'm disputing this credit. You lay out the criteria that you're disputing it for, whether it is like, you feel my contribution was better or more or greater. And then what happens is the credit arbitration process. All versions of the script get submitted. They take a look at everybody's contracts, which are also filed with the guild as it is because every guild production has to file the WGA contracts of the writers with the guild and the guild starts sifting through it. They impanel three members. Uh, I believe it's a three member panel that they, that they impanel, which are also three writers who are WGA. It comes from a giant list of people. You in that process will get a copy of the list as a writer and you'll get to strike several names from the list. Uh, the last time I saw one of those lists, it was like eight pages long, four columns each. Uh, of just names and we had our writer go through and say hey are any of these people in here who potentially may not like you or have a reason not to be fair about you or who know you who would be partial and we would ask for all of them to be stricken so that it would be as impartial as possible is it kind of like a jury
0: duty thing when these people get summoned up for yeah anything? and a little
2: a little bit uh i like that that's a great analogy <laughs> So then obviously everybody brings their evidence and uh, the WGA makes a determination. I believe that there is an appeals process as well, but I've never had to actually deal with that. I'm not sure what the success rate would be for that either because... Essentially, you're impaneling the same people. It's not like you're getting a new jury. You're getting the same
1: killed to look at the exact same information a second time. Do you know the threshold between solo credit and shared credit?
2: Um, I don't offhand. It's defined in the MBA. And that's, you know, that's the best part about being a lawyer is you don't have to have every number of statistics (laughs) on hand. I, I don't personally memorize, you know, the WGA schedule of minimums. I just know where that resource is. And I think that that's probably the most important. Trying to pull things out of your head. That's how mistakes are often made. This is a very technical job, and I like to be very technically proficient. So
0: I go right back to the resource every time. So I think a lot of writers are worried about this idea of having their scripts or ideas stolen. Now, what is the reality of that? And if it's an issue, what can those writers do to protect themselves legally?
2: I think that's a great question. It came up even as recently as yesterday with a cousin of mine and with my wife, we were discussing, hey, if I submit something to this smaller production company, could it potentially be stolen? Often, this is why production companies won't take direct submissions from unknown persons. Person A, Joe Schmo, emails their general email of Crypt TV, let's say, and they say, here, consider my idea. Usually Crypt TV says, thanks, we've deleted your email unread. They don't want to deal with the suit. People will also have the misconception that you know, my idea was very similar to this other idea and you must have stolen it from me. The truth is that typically it doesn't happen a lot, especially at the larger studio level. Does it happen? Of course it happens sometimes. It's often very difficult to prove. And so the best protections that you have are using either an agent or an attorney to submit it. When you're submitting projects, typically that gives you what's called a submission claim. So let's say you wrote a story about soccer players who were in high school who were also dealing math. Okay. It's like the breaking bad version of soccer players
1: story of my life. Yeah.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, you submitted your script to production company and they said, you know, we read it, we liked it, but thanks. It wasn't for us. And then two years later they come out with literally a show about (laughs) soccer players dealing meth uh, but maybe they place it in like the middle east (laughs) you're like man that is my show if you have direct cause to show that you know maybe you can make a case the question is do you want to now go litigate it so typically my advice to people is don't submit your project to people who you don't think are legitimate if you think that they're a guy in his garage producing don't submit it to them unless there's something in writing with them that's going to say Hey, you submitted your project to me. I have no other projects like that. Now look, real production companies are not going to do that. They're going to do the exact opposite. They're actually going to hand you a piece of paper that says, you're agreeing to submit your idea to us. You're also agreeing that we have a ton of stuff that's submitted to us all the time, maybe substantially similar to yours. We have things in development that are similar to yours. All of those similarities are uh, totally coincidental, and you waive us of any liability. So that's the more typical method. You know, if you're especially unrepresented, you're going to sign what's called a submission waiver, and that's what's going to have all that stuff in there. So the best way to protect yourself is work with people, you know, who are legitimate. Use an agent or use an
1: attorney to submit your stuff. And I think that's the best protection you can have. Is there anything proactive that newer writers with that representation can do when submitting to those, even if it's sort of like an an official capacity, those uh, big production companies, maybe something like copywriting an original pilot script? Is that something that's viable?
2: Copywriting is a great method. I actually recommend it over registering with the WGA. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but it's only a few dollars more to copyright it and it gives you all the protections in the world at least as far as they can go. So just having a WGA registration doesn't give you statutory minimums for plagiarizing and infringing on your copyrighted material. Filing a copyright does. It's really difficult, honestly. I just caution people to use their best judgment. The smell test, if something feels fishy, if somebody's very shady, don't submit your work to them. There's often this like great excitement to get something done, to get something sold, to get something made or considered. Uh, on some extent, it is a bit of a leap of faith. I, I'm not quite sure, like, what the... <laughs> they're sort of signing everything in blood. I, I don't know <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's how true, you hold sure. somebody to it. That's uh,
0: can you put to rest the debate about the legality of mailing yourself an unopened version of a like dated version of your script or something? Have you ever heard of that? Like I, people, I are heard like of this. people are like people like send this. Look, to you. I
2: think uh, I don't know if this came out of like just Back to the Future. Don't open until
0: nineteen eighty four.
2: Yeah, I'm not sure where that that ever came from. I assume it's because when you mail something, typically it gets stamped, mm-hmm. and so you have a date from a government entity. The truth is, look, copyrights affix to your work from the moment you touch pen to paper. Proving when you made it, you know, maybe that's a way to say, look, that's when it was made before that date. That's great. But ultimately, the best protection is to spend the $65, file online with the Copyright Office, and get the sheet of paper that says, I filed on X date. Here's the
1: date of my copyright. How early in the process do you recommend people copyright their work? Is it treatment phase, outline phase, beat sheet, finish pilot? Yeah. So
2: I just want to be clear. Remember, you can't copyright ideas. Okay. So the idea that we used before, it's not protectable as far as an idea goes, right? What we're trying to do is show causation for plagiarizing some of your material, which means that they've made some derivative work based on it. So- maybe it wasn't the best example to say, look, yes, you'll be able to show that they stole your show. It it may be that the show is totally nuanced from yours. And maybe the one was about kids selling math and that, or maybe their version was really about the parents selling math and the kids just happen to be impartial bystanders. So there are certain elements. It's important to be sure like what's protectable. Your actual written work is protectable. If somebody starts pulling dialogue, starts using characters and reworking it, there's like an assumption that they've usurped that opportunity from you, and that's how you can go after them. But as far as protecting that specific ideas, pieces, you probably don't get away with protecting those. What you're protecting is the physical words on paper, you
0: know, your voice, so to speak. It's about the execution, essentially. That's right. That mm-hmm. So at what point do you think a writer should look into getting a lawyer? And then how do they find the right one for them?
2: I'll start with how do you find the right one for you? Honestly, it's about meeting with enough people and finding somebody that you honestly vibe with. Most attorneys who have been doing this long enough have at least a good enough sense of the major points. Use, you know, your friends for referrals. Figure out who they're talking to. Figure out points that maybe have gone bad with them in other deals. And you know when you're questioning an attorney, about certain things, use that ammunition to say, well, how would you deal with this kind of thing? And shop around. Ultimately, for me, it's about relationships. So uh, personally, I'm only taking on writers who I read. I know that you may be more junior, or you may not be making any money right now. But look, I'm also at the beginning of my career, I've only been doing this for four or five years. It's enough to be a real player, but I'm looking to, to grow with other people and people who I'm passionate about and whose work I like. So I'm not just picking up every person who's touched pen to paper. Look, as far as when in the the process you find one, if you're reading paperwork that doesn't make sense to you, then that's really when it makes sense to get somebody involved. Now, whether that's getting a friend who's an entertainment attorney to give it a once over and say, look, man, go back and ask about these points. You're not big enough fish for me, but... I'll do you a solid and give you a read through and not on my malpractice, but you know, <laughs> here's what I would ask about if I were you, you know, get things clarified probably as early as you can. If you have to shell out a little bit of change to get it done, it may save you a lot of heartache or loss of profit later it may put you in a better position, you know, spend 50, a two, two, three, $400 to get a single contract reviewed. If it's a 50 page contract, don't expect that you're only <laughs> going to get out the door paying 200 bucks. It really depends. There's a cost-benefit analysis. If you have a $50,000 contract in front of you for the sale of a script, I think the investment in an entertainment attorney for two, three grand to look over that contract is not crazy. Uh,
0: So what's next for you and what are your goals for the future?
2: That's a great question. Um, You know, at the moment, I'm reading a lot. I'm trying to expand my client base. But again, slowly, uh, I'm only taking on people who I've read and I really like. You know, I'm also trying to get some things made not things that I've written. Again, I'm trying to continually be a resource to the people who I work with and work for my clients. I really care about them. I'm friends with most of them. So, you know, I have other junior producers that I'm friends with or other producers of different TV shows that I'm friends with. I really love to take scripts that I've read that I'm passionate about and try and put them at the right place. Whether that means getting another buddy across town who's in development to to read something for them, obviously with the permission of my clients, you know, with the hope that that might spur a conversation somewhere or might get a general or, you know, it might bring that next step for their career. Because I really know that, you know, helping the artists kind of advance is really how my career will also grow. And I'm married to an artist, so I'm really about the art.
1: All right, before we go, we have some final questions for you. Uh, Number one, what TV shows are you watching right now?
2: I'm watching Breaking Bad right now. Believe it or not, I never finished Breaking Bad, and my wife had never seen it, so I'm watching that. I'm also watching season two of The Ozark. Gosh, what just came out? Iron Fist came out the other day, so I want to watch season two of that. I read really a lot. That's where I get a lot of pleasure. I don't know if you guys are into online web serials, but Worm has been like traditionally the best one for me 10 years old i've read it twice it's a million and a half words it's the equivalent of like game of thrones times two (laughs) (laughs) and it's phenomenal it's crazy i know the writer he's a gentleman who lives up in ottawa
0: do you have any final advice for writers when it comes to anything from contracts to law to that kind of thing
2: You know, one piece of advice that I think I'm going to throw out there as part of when you're looking for an agent or a manager or attorney, one thing to always keep going for yourself is actually what I like to call a fans list. So especially if you're progressing, you know, you're an assistant, you meet other people, especially people who read your work, people who are fans of you as a person and your writing, you should really be keeping an updated list of that. Those are people who you can then use when you're approaching your agents or managers to say, look, these people have read my work. They love me, they've given me good notes, they've taken the time and opportunity to tell me that my work is good and that they would consider me for a job. That's just you doing your due diligence to help yourself be sold later on. The other thing is to educate yourself. I don't expect writers to know every nuance of their deals. I do think it's important for them to have a high level understanding of what their deals entail. For that, I actually offer two resources. One is, if there was nothing else to read, it's the book called Hollywood Dealmaking by Dina Appleton and Daniel Yangelovitz. I want to say is how you say his name. It's a great, great overview of the industry. It, first of all, is geared towards entertainment attorneys, but it's written in plain English. Mm-hmm. It starts by giving you an overview of who all the players are, the attorneys, the agents, the studio execs, <laughs> the studios versus the networks, production companies, etc. cetera and then it takes you right down into the nuanced, meaty pieces of deals. So as an overview, I think that it's an invaluable resource for writers especially to kind of pick up this book and read it, it's not super expensive, Uh, it's available on Amazon. If you wanna get more in depth, I would say go find the book Contracts for the Film and Television Industry. It's very dense, it's a little heavier, but it's strictly geared towards contracts, film, television, option agreements, I'm not telling you that you could get away without an attorney, but I am telling you that there are <laughs> examples of option agreements in there. Shopping agreements may or may not fit your need, especially when you're just getting going and they are not substitute for legal advice. But if you needed a place to start, that's probably a place that you could go look. So at least when you are shopping for an attorney, you know exactly
1: what you're looking for. Well, that wraps up the episode. But before we go, our Paper Tees competition is still open for submissions. So if you have a TV pilot teaser of eight pages or less, any format, any genre, you can enter it for free at paperteam.co teaser to
0: potentially get feedback on air and be eligible for our Paper Team mentorship. Yeah, and prizes from our sponsors. So thanks for everyone for tuning in and thanks to Pono for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thank you. And uh, you can get all the show notes for this episode, including the resource list at paperteam.co slash 107. if you'd like to leave us a review, that would be awesome. You can do it at paperteam.co slash iTunes, and all those reviews will help us find new listeners and build our community. Thanks again to this episode's sponsor, Roadmap Writers, who in just two years have helped more than 50 writers find representation. So you can visit roadmapwriters.com to see their full slate of educational programs. Paper team listeners can use the code ROADMAP, all caps, all one word, to save $15 off your first program. And as always, I'm on Twitter at TV Calling. I'm at underscore NJ Watson. And where can people find you? Either on social media or perhaps, you know, if they're looking to employ your services, do you have a website or anything like that?
2: Yeah. If you want to get in touch with me, you can either hit me up through Instagram or Twitter. I think on Instagram it's at Warmonger Zero. It's warmonger spelled out with a zero. He's on, hey, me. <laughs> I'm former military, so that's where that comes from. Mm-hmm. On Twitter, I'm at PR Spanos or at This Lawyer Says. You're welcome to shoot
1: me a direct message. All right. And we'll put those links in the show notes. And if you have any thoughts, feedback, ideas for future episodes, you can send them to ask at paperteam.co. And next week, we are actually taking a break for Indigenous Peoples Day, but we'll be back on Monday, October 15, with an episode all about TV writer reps, the other kind of reps. Uh, We'll be doing a follow-up to our 101 overview, as we'll dive into the best ways you can make the most out of your manager or agent relationship. All right, we'll see you guys then. See you then.